Another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the voice actors, the cinematographers, the film editors, the sound editors, sound mixers, the costume designers, the animators, uh, you name it, the composers. We talk to them all. And we're ta- we've got some great conversation for you on today's show. Um, today it's all about animation. Uh, and I'm moving along quickly because of the length of our first pre-recorded interview um, that I don't want to shortchange at all for you. Um, but it's all about animation today. Uh, most notably with one of the Oscar-nominated films for Best Animated Feature Film, the Mitchells versus the Machines. This is out of the nominees that we ended up with this year. You all know by now my love for Vivo. Uh, that didn't that didn't get anything with nominations anywhere. But short of that, I have been in love with the Mitchells versus the Machines since last April, and finally I got to speak with co-director Mike Rian, co-director, co-writer. Mike Rianda on Friday. Yeah, I know. There's nothing like cutting it down to the last minute, especially when Oscar voting ends tomorrow. Um, but that wasn't my fault. <laughs> I, had, I had a year open for them. <laughs> this is what Sony, <laughs> Sony Animation gave me. Uh, but it's well, it was well worth the wait to talk with Mike about the making of the Mitchells versus the Machine and his love for animation. Uh, this film is indeed, it is a beam of joy and it shoots straight into your heart. Dad and daughter dynamic and relationship. And who doesn't love a daddy and a daughter relationship? Family road trip and a lot of robots and machinery. It allowed Mike and his co writer, co director, uh, Jeff Rowe, it allowed them to incorporate different animation styles for a 2D, 3D blend, multiplicity of colors that build upon one another, contrasting yet melding at the same time. Just incredible. Oscar voters, if you have not voted yet for Best Animated Feature, I encourage you to vote for The Mitchells versus The Machines. And as soon as we finish with Mike's interview, which you're going to hear in a moment, joining us for the second half of the show, half of the show is co-writer, co-director, co-editor Morgan Galen King talking about The Spine of Night, a totally different style of animated film, hand-drawn, relying on rot- the old-school rotoscoping um, that was originated back in 1915. Uh, as a means of storytelling, aiding storytelling to make things look 
more realistic, to produce realistic action, be it with animation or in live action. So Morgan will be joining us at the midpoint of the show to talk about the Spine of Night, which was totally overlooked by the Academy. Um, a lot of snubs this, for this year. But without any further ado, we're going to jump right in, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Mike Rianda talking the incredible animated delight, The Mitchells vs. the Machines. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm thrilled to finally get to talk to you about this film. I love it. I'm in. I am such a fan of The Mitchells vs. the Machines. Oh, thank you. You really, you stepped out of the box with this one. Yeah. Um, and it's a real standout in this year's field of Oscar nominees in particular. What stuck out for me last year from the moment I saw the film is, number one, your story. You do a dad and daughter storyline, which we never see enough of. And every daughter out there loves dad and daughter stories. I don't care what they may say, they love them. In their heart, they love them. You go on a road trip, which always opens up wonderful avenues for animation and story exploration. And then you incorporate your own great love of movies and pop culture into this meld of a 2D, 3D kind of animation style that, and then punctuate it all with vibrancy, color that just leaps off the screen. You blend animation with geometric lines of of compartmentalizing, with the robots versus the roundness and the quirkiness of everything else. And you've got everything going against everything else, so it just melds perfectly. Thank you. That's, uh, I, I love it. I, I, you, you noticed all the things we did. <laughs> the geometric lines, that I just fell in love with, right down to the robots themselves, um, with the hard lines there, but then all the imperfections of humanity and love. This movie, ultimately, your story is about achieving the imperfection of humanity and love. A dysfunctional family is actually the most normal thing there is. Yeah, totally. And you really bring that to light. I mean, how do you... Everybody's heard the story, the journey you've been on, but how do you actually, once you get this idea in your head, where did this begin for you? Because it is animation. How do you start animating something like this? I mean, I think, I think it all came down to, uh, you know, one, one huge thing for us was that we had this open canvas. You know, we were at a place like Sony, and there was no rules, and there's no house style, and there's no formula, so we could basically do whatever we wanted, which was wonderful. So we all, the only sort of limitation we had was our own like imaginations, really, which is which is it sounds trite, but it was really true. Um, so we had we like went down and we like you know we sat down with Jeff Rowe, uh, co-director, and, and Lindsay Oliveras, who's the production designer, and Gilmore Martinez, who's the historian. We were just talking about how to tell the story in the best way possible, and. And we really realized that, that you know, the, the movie had these two worlds in it. And we wanted the human world to feel loved up and lived in 
and organic as possible. And, and, and if that was the case, and we wanted to feel really real, like as if you were went to your aunt's house growing up and you're like, whoa, I remember that, you know, weird sign from Michael's on the wall that says live, laugh, love or whatever. Um, and then, so we, we wanted to feel like, like these are real people and th- th- that you could meet and, and that if you saw them on the street, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know those guys. But, and then so on the other side of things, when we put that up on the wall, we tried to figure out the thing that's the furthest from it possible. And one of our artists, Arthur Song, found these like James Terrell installations and this like geometric artwork um, by a bunch of by a bunch of wonderful artists. And we're like, oh, these things look incredible next to each other. So we just tried to, we were basically, and also just trying to lean into the human side, can we be as observational as possible, look at real life and look at, you know, like, for example, my own family and, and the rest of our families and try to pull and make them feel as human and real as possible. And then on the other side of things, how can it feel as innovative as possible? How can these robots move in a crazy way that you've never seen before? How can this robot city look totally wild and different in a way that you've never seen before? Um, and basically, you know, and, and even in the, you know, and then on top of that, have these Katie's drawings uh, on the screen that 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 bring more humanity to it um so and and the whole because the whole thing was we were trying to make a movie that we would love and we were trying to rebel against all the movies that we didn't like <laughs> um and and also having chris and phil uh chris and Phil there was incredible because they sort of cheered us on in all of our weirdest moments and instead of the studio clamping down and saying no that's a little too out there that's a little too wild and they would say like, no, no, no. That's the whole reason that people will see the movie in theater is that it's, is that it, or you know, on Netflix in this case, but is that it's, it's, it's undeniably unique, um, but it also is good at the same time, which is the, the balance you need to strike. Well, and, and you did an excellent job striking that balance, but the other area, you know, with the visuals. And uh-huh. your use of color is just outstanding, outstanding, and particularly with Katie's drawings. And mm-hmm. as I'm looking at all of those and the little pop-ups that happen throughout the film, with all the pop culture zeitgeist stuff mm-hmm. that comes into play, all I could think about is who has not, when they're sitting in class, even I did this back in the 60s and 70s, I will admit to it, I would doodle on the side of the page when I was yeah. bored in class, especially math class. And I would come up with a lot of geometric drawings like what I'm seeing in this film. You... We, we went back and we, we found those drawings. <laughs> we put them on the screen. <laughs> but, you know, it's that color that also sets things apart. Was it difficult to come up with this color palette? Because that's also a balance that you found while making yeah. the humanity, the human element, be come to life? No, thanks, thanks for asking that. That's a great question. Um, um, the, our color stylist was a guy named Dave Bleich, and he's wonderful, and he's so thoughtful about, um, about the color choices because we had these really bright, saturated, futuristic, you know, technology-type colors because, you know, one thing... Um, a production designer Lindsay would talk would always talk about is like if you look at an app on your phone, it's always these really bright flat colors. Mm-hmm. So those should be the colors of like the enemy, and and technology are these really bright saturated colors. So 
So we tried to keep the rest of the movie kind of muted um, color-wise and, 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 and not use these crazy bright colors so that when, so that when we did see some you know, scene where you're in Powell's office and everything's like bright purple, that it's a real shock to your system because you've been in all these warm earth tones and stuff. And, and that was something that the, the team was really thoughtful about. We really tried to be um, both um, be conservative about when we were using these bright colors, but also when we were, just put the pedal to the metal and be really bold and not, and not sort of hedge our sails and be like, well, it's a little blue. And it's like, no, this thing, this whole scene is going to be shooting blue out of the screen um, and the whole theater will be blue when you're watching it or whatever. Um, uh, so it was it was really fun working with those guys because they were so excited about the opportunity to do something new that they just they just ran with it and they they every time I'd go into those uh, color sessions it was always a delight because they always came up with something new to uh, that that blew us away. Yeah, I absolutely I'm in love with the color that you have in this film because not only do you have the robotic world, you have the human world, but then you've got Katie's art. And you really, boy, it gets pumped up there, and you've got, yeah. you've got such a mix of colors, but it's alive, and you love it, and you can't look away from it. So you really have three layers of color use happening here, and here again, it melds together. That contrast builds and melds perfectly. That's, I mean, I gotta tell the guys about this. They're gonna love this interview. I love these geeky things in films, be it live action, <laughs> be it animation. Those structure considerations, the construct considerations of bu the building blocks of the film. Yeah. And that's something that you do very well here because through all of this, what you're also doing with your story is you've got a subtext going here um, about the importance of human connection over technology and that color is very important at conveying the idea of human connection put down the phones you don't need Roombas running around your house to do vacuuming you know go get a broom go get you know go get a Swiffer but that's so important with telling us that as an underlying subtext and I, yeah. I just love that you incorporate that into this story well, thank you. I, that's so nice that you noticed. I mean, you know, one thing that I think sort of, you know, the movie, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one thing that ties it together is that, you know, from a thematic standpoint, it's about Rick um, Mitchell, who is looking into the past and, and longing for this relationship that he used to have with his daughter, and Katie, who's looking to the future, and she's blind to the past, and Rick is blind to the future. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the movie, they're both looking forward to the future and growing together. Um, which is really nice, but also we tried to do that exact same thing with the art style, where we look backwards to, um, and because basically you'd have to find this like synthesis of like past and future. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like one of the things that we're trying to do with the with the um, with the theme. But and then we're also trying to find a synthesis of past and future with the art style, where you were using, you know, we're we're inspired by illustration and two D animation, but we're also using these zany or, you know, these really futuristic Spider-Verse tools and, like, pushing them further than they've ever been pushed before. 
and, and sort of finding this combination of old and new, and same with the music, where Mark Mothersbaugh is using, you know, all this traditional score, but he's also using tons of synthesizers and stuff and melding those two. So we're trying through the whole movie, and the same for the colors, where it's like the, the, the colors of the past are these kind of like warm, golden earth tones, and the colors mm -hmm. of the future are these bright blue, crazy, you know, uh, uh, salmons and greens and pinks. Um, and then at the end of the movie, we try to sort of combine those things and, and, and sort of find a, find a unified uh, way that those, those can live in harmony with each other. Mm -hmm. Another great balance here, and that's within the characters themselves. While this is, is really in Katie's POV, uh, this is mm -hmm. this is Katie's story, but yeah. you know you find this great balance so that no every character has their own story. How mm -hmm. difficult was it to find that balance? Because some are very very exciting, like Maya Rudolph's character of Linda. Boy, you know she gets her moments to shine in that third act, yeah. but you want to know more about Linda, and mm -hmm. of course you want to know more about you know about Aaron everybody yeah. has a pesky little brother everybody <laughs> you know little brothers need to be heard they need bigger stories sometimes yeah. so how challenging was it to find that balance within the story but still shine a light on each of these characters yeah no that's a great question you know the thing we realized is that the, the relationship between Rick and Katie was like, um, you know, Katie is sort of the biggest pillar of the movie. And then her relationship with Rick is sort of the second biggest pillar. So those are those are your two pillars. And we found that, like, you could have a story with Aaron as long as it related and tied into that. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and it's like when Aaron and Linda were rooting for those two people to come together and you got to see Aaron's vulnerability and he said he's really scared about his daughter his sister leaving for college too and that he kind of feels like Rick too and that he's a little afraid to let her go you know um, that really that really tied his story together and made it all click um, and that he was you know afraid he was sort of like afraid to talk to this girl but sort of he became bolder because he went through this really intense um, situation and the same with Linda where she's like a little bit she's trying to make everyone happy the whole time and then she finally snaps um, and she's the whole the whole movie she's like trying to push um, you know Rick and Rick and uh, Katie together and she's like writing notes on cardboard and that sort of thing um, and when when those when all those arrows are pointed in the same direction you could you could really flesh out those characters um, but sometimes we would have this things where we would have side stories in older versions of the movie we'd have side stories for Aaron and Linda that took the audience away from Rick and Katie's story mm -hmm. and it felt more diffuse and confusing and it made the movie worse but when they were all pointed towards uh, the central um, emotional story it all worked mm -hmm. no I think you did an excellent job of finding balance for each of the characters so we get to learn about all of them and even Pal Pal is a very interesting character because Pal, yeah, totally. Pal is, you know, it's an AI character, but yet very human characteristics of, of jealousy and power and hurt, very emotional. And I found that really interesting, Mike, that you went that direction. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because we found out that you couldn't go in any other direction. Um, you know, it, 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 the audience, you know, again, it's, it's, it's the, the whole pillar of the movie is about the central relationship, about a daughter leaving and a dad feeling sort of obsolete. And we we're like, okay, how do we make the story of, of Mark, this, you know, tech creator and, and, uh, and pal feel connected to that? And the, the way we did it was that, like, Rick is feeling obsolete and like he's being forgotten and Pal is being obsolete and like she's being forgotten. And those sort once those stories like mirrored each other, they sort of thematically clicked into place and you cared about him and you didn't care unless you felt like Pal actually had feelings. Mm-hmm. Like if you could feel Pal's hurt, all of a sudden you cared about it. Um, and, and also it doesn't help, it doesn't hurt to have you know, the world's greatest actress, voicing her. Yeah, um, you know. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, she was a, just a, a dream and as amazing as you'd hope. Um, so that 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 was um, that was also an ace. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I just, I love that analogy of what we were seeing unfolding on screen between Rick and Pal. Now, mm-hmm. the music here is Mother Spa has just knocked it out of the park once again. I expect nothing less when his name yeah. is attached to something. But here you have very specific needle drops melded with the yeah. score, and the score has so many different elements to it that bring in the path with instrumentation that Mark does. You've got elements of the past, instruments that are more classical, that are you know more in tune with pop culture over the years and music. Then you bring in some futuristic, some synth elements, so I'm curious what your conversations were like with Mark, with what you were looking for musically, and then melding that with needle drops that are very, very specifically placed and picked. Yeah, um, I think you know, in terms of Mark, uh, you know, we it was just, it was along the same lines of the conversations that we had with the artists, where we were like, could we? Um, you know, is there a way to make this, you know, is there a way to make this family feel really organic and, and alive and human and imperfect with the instrumentation? Like, we would sort of, would sort of like, encourage Mark to, like, play wrong notes and stuff like that, mm-hmm. when, you know, when, when, the, when the Mitchells were around. Whereas when the, um, for the robot, like, everything was, like, perfect and, the, the you know, everything was, like, I don't know enough about you. Like, you know, syncopated and like dun 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 dun. You know, the the timing was really even um, of all the robot uh, 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 of all the robot stuff, and, and it was we were trying to, you know, do the basically do the same thing with the uh, music that we we're doing with the art is like meld, you know, find a synthesis of the past and the future. And then in terms of the needle drops and stuff, you know, oftentimes those are just songs we loved, um, and and really, you know, again, we were just sort of because the movie is this sort of like celebration of humanity, we wanted to have these really um, warm songs um, that had a band. Because like bands are kind of messy and the song, you know, the notes aren't always played perfectly, but it feels really warm and human. Um, so that's where, you know, a lot of those, uh, a lot of the songs choices came from. Now the songs that ended up in the film, are they the songs you envisioned along the way? Or did that little thing called budget come into play with getting licensing. Do you want to know, uh, here's, here's a story. Um, 
we didn't have enough budget for because that song live your life is very expensive mm -hmm. um it has a lot of rights and all this stuff so and there's a point in the movie where we're like oh no we're not gonna be able to afford all the music and chris miller and bill lord were like we'll pay for the music for <laughs> wow. a bunch of the songs um and it was like the studio was very right to ask like is this necessary is this one song necessary? do we really need this but we noticed that it we're like we tried to play ball and we were like yeah well let's try it let's try to find a cheaper option and you could always hear it you could always listen you would watch the movie and you're like hmm kind of sucks now Hmm, what happened? And then it was like, it ended up being worth the money to those guys. Because <laughs> they were like, we want the movie to be good. We don't care. Um, so they paid, they paid for some of those ones. I think Sony might have paid them back at this point. But well, I, I yeah, as successful as the movie's been, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. But, you know, now that begs the question, with the ed animation editing process, editing is editing, but animation editing is is quite different in many respects from live action editing. So I'm curious, did you have a temp track and temp music laid in to aid in the editing with finding your flow? Or, yes. or talk to me about how you proceeded with that on this one. Oh my God, Edit, it's, it's so nice that you asked, but nobody asked about editing. Editing is like the most important part of the process, I kind of think. like. Every part now, every part is really important and vital, but like editing is like where the movie is either becomes good or bad. Um, and our editor Greg Lovehan is so wonderful and sat in that room for so many hours. Um, and but you know, really, because it's the interesting. It, I, I wish I could explain it to people because it's so wild. Because so many of the times we're writing scenes in the edit bay, mm -hmm. like we're just voicing characters and I'm doing the temp scratch and we're then we try a version and then we watch it and then we're like no that isn't good maybe this line here instead then you watch it again and you're like okay it's getting a little better and then you just do that forever and the interesting thing about editing is it never stops in animation it starts before you start uh, animating anything but I kind of thought because you know in, in the way that normal people perceive it is it like oh in, in animation you have to edit first because animation is really expensive and that's true, but you're also editing until the very last minute. Mm -hmm. Because you could always make a joke a little crisper or make an emotional mo moment hit a little harder or what have you with a little bit of jazzy editing. And, and our, our edit team was so wonderful and they never gave up. And we were literally editing until the last minute of the last day. Wow. One of the great things about the editing of this film, Mike, is that not only is everything do we get sufficient time and balancing this that and the other element but you keep the energy up we never lose the energy in this film sure we have a couple slower moments but there's still there's energy happening you don't let that lapse and i am very impressed with that because given the visuals given the vibrancy of the color and the layering of your color palettes you need to keep that energy going because if you don't, if your editing goes slow, you're going to have a great disconnect there between the vibrancy and energy of what we're seeing, but we're not feeling it because it's dragging and lagging. And you avoided yeah. that, and I so love that with this film. Oh, nice. 
You know, it's, well, I think I, I do think that's unnecessary because because the, there are some slow moments in terms, but they're slow intentionally because of um, because of the emotional moments, and and I think that that contrast is like one of the things that makes the movie work, where the movie can be pretty fast and frenetic, but we slow down mm-hmm. for the emotional stuff, you know, because if you don't. Uh, you'll, y- your head will explode, you know? <laughs> like even, and, it, and it sort of, it makes the emotional stuff feel more emotional and it makes the funny stuff feel funnier, um, I think, because we're sort of pushing both sides of that. And I'm glad you mentioned funny because how difficult was it and how much fine-tuning went into the dialogue? Because the dialogue oh here God. is so peppered with pop culture <laughs> over... You know, the 80s, the 90s, you've got throwbacks happening in here, your own love of movies, you've got movie references galore happening visually and in dialogue. How challenging was putting the dialogue together for this film? Oh, my God. uh, Wildly. Uh, That was one of the hardest things, you know. Luckily, we had these amazing actors who could bring a lot of themselves into it. And, and some of the best moments come from them, you know, because it's so, you know, you could write a thousand lines in a, in a you know, in an empty room on your laptop, but it, when somebody comes out and just something comes out of their body and some new line comes out, they're like, oh, this is what I would say in that situation. You got to capture it, you know, and I think in some other movies, the idea is like, oh, don't use any of the stuff that the actors do. <laughs> like, <laughs> hide that, you know, bury that in the back and light it on fire. But, like, in in in, in our movie, you know, since the whole operation was, like, make it unique, um, we were able to use all these, you know, strange ideas that the actors came up with in the little halting starts and stops and half sentences that they would say before they say their actual lines. And, you know, because that stuff made it feel more human and alive. Um, but, but on the other hand, just, you know, in terms of, like, dialogue and comedy and stuff, you know that stuff's hard work, man. Uh, <laughs> like, you really gotta have, you really gotta have the stomach to re-edit uh, a joke 500 times because oh, the animation changed a little bit. Somehow, for some reason, not as funny as it used to be. Ooh, now it's even funnier if you, if you overcut this sound with that edit. Okay, let's do three more frames on that. No, that's too much. Let's do one more frame. Perfect. You know, like it's the whole thing is uh, is is really uh, you have to have a lot of patience. Um, You have to really care about things being funny or else they won't be. And now we know why Bob Hope kept a room with every joke he ever wrote. (laughs) Hey, smart. (laughs) You know, one thing that has loomed and has stood out for me since I first saw the film last year, why a moose? You know, uh, uh, that was something that Jeff Rose, my uh, co-writer and co-director, was wonderful. Um, came up with because we were trying to work on these scenes with Rick and Katie's relationship, and we're like, you know, it's all just so verbal. It's all so talky. Um, and we were trying to think of a, of a symbol for their relationship that was cinematic and not just verbal. So um, Jeff drew this sort of dusty little moose. I think it was an elk at first. Um, uh, an elk is like sort of a, a less cute animal. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but but he drew this like dusty moose and it's like what if Rick gave Katie this and she just threw it away and it's like dusty and the dust represents their you know the this relationship that they used to have and now it's been forgotten you know and it was like oh man that was like that hit us so hard emotionally um, and then that became the symbol for their relationship where 
she initially throws it away, but by the end of the movie, she's treasuring it and she puts it in her pocket. And it's the thing that sort of makes me cry at the end. Um, so, so yeah, that was sort of the the idea. No, I mean, I think the moose is cute. No, I mean, when the first time I saw the moose, I thought of Rocky and Bullwinkle. I thought of Bullwinkle moose. <laughs> hey, Rook, what's your full rabbit on my head? See? See? I got one last question for you, Mike. This sure. is so wonderful, get, finally getting to talk to you about this film. I can't tell you. Sure. I'm, hey, you got a lot of great points and questions. I love it. I'm here. I'm here for it. A lot of people, they want to make films. I want to be a director. Huh? I want to be a filmmaker. I want to be yeah. Orson Welles or or whomever. But what going into animation is something very specific. So I'm really curious... What is the magic of animation? What does animation mean to you as a storyteller? Oh, yeah, sure. Everything. I mean, because the amazing thing about animation is you can literally do anything. There's no rules. The only rules are your own imagination. Again, which sounds trite, but it's true. Like, you can tell a story where... It's a naturalistic family story that has a giant killer furby in the middle of it. Um, you know, uh, you can you can do anything. I mean, like if you look at, you know, there's so many amazing movies. Like Turning Red just came out, and that's like such a wildly different story than mine. But I felt it in my heart so much, you know, and 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 it's because you can you can, you know, and and like in our movie, we you can we you can adjust every single style. You know, like, you don't have to accept, oh, you know what, it's raining today, so the scene has to be, it's raining. Like, no, the weather can be whatever you want. The color of the sky can be whatever you want. The color of the character's eyes can be whatever you want. They can, their faces can do anything you want. Like, you have so much control, and you can turn all of those dials to, to, to create a beam of joy and shoot it in people's hearts. Um, and it's, it's just, like, it's, it's by far my favorite art form. <clears throat> Yeah. And it's something that I, I, I don't ever want to leave. Oh, well, I hope you don't leave it. My God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're wonderful at it. No, thank you. Very quickly, Mike, if you had to sum up the Mitchells versus the Machines in one word, what would that word be? Oh, uh, I'm going to cheat. Innovative and joyful. Boom. That was three words. I refused. I refused the question. Innovative and joyful. And that was Mike Rianda talking about the spectacular, the Mitchells versus the Machines. Uh, if you haven't seen it, folks, it's on Netflix. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is really an enjoyable, enjoyable film. Um, and there's so many places they could go with a sequel uh, to this one which I would love to, to see happen. Um, but it's on Netflix. Watch it. Academy voters, if you haven't cast your vote yet for Best Animated Feature Film, please give some consideration to The Mitchells versus The Machines. All right, and we're going to switch animation gears here and say a big hello to Morgan Galen King, one, the co-director, co-writer, co-editor, lead animator of the glorious The Spine of Night. Hey, Morgan. Oh, hey. How are you doing? I am so happy to be talking to you today. Today is my a day of animation. 
Uh, oh, that's wonderful. On Thank behind. you so much for including. Oh, my <laughs> God. Well, it was actually you who inspired uh, All About Animation today because oh, wow. Annie and I have had you booked on the show for a while. And uh, it just so happened that I interviewed Mike Rianda, the co-director of Mitchell's vs. the Machines, on Friday. And it's like perfect. Two totally different <laughs> animated films, totally different styles. To- you know, yours is hand-drawn, rotoscoping, um, versus Mike's blend of 2D, 3D, and eye-popping color, where you get into the darker, more mystical, and more adult themes with Spine of Night. So, hey, it's uh, thank you for that inspiration, Morgan. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have been able to be a part of it all. That's very cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, something that is also very cool is The Spine of Night. This is... I could not look away from this as I'm watching it. So original. Um, I love the animation. I love old school rotoscoping anyway. Um, and But this is... Just the story, the characters, the voicing, and the color. Your color palette speaks volumes in this film. I'm so glad that comes across, you know. Oh. Spend so much time trying to get the look just like you want it. And, you know, I don't know that everyone picks up on that. You know, the color is so important. You know, people to every year, Pantone comes out with a new color for the year. And people forget about how important color is when you're when you're painting a room, when you're painting a house, when you're picking out your clothes. Well, it's just as important in animation, if not more so, because it's part of the storytelling toolkit. Yeah, we have the one section where it's done in um, silhouette, and so like choosing the, the the sky in each one is like one big color, and you know, like trying to change those so that to show the passage of time and to set the mood and set like the emotional stakes we're looking at in this very abstracted setting you know it, it was all yeah there was lots of thought went into, into crafting that like painting a room you know every frame of spine of night you can see the thought that went into it morgan you know for those that haven't seen the film haven't heard about it what would be your description? What would be your synopsis of this story? Because this is a wholly original story. This isn't a remake. It's not a reimagination. Uh, it's not adaptation from a book, although I know you did do a short film uh, prior to this from which you might have gleaned a few things. But what is the basic story of Spine of Night? I, I've famously been very bad at summarizing it, but... <laughs> But, uh, I mean, the short version is, you know, it's a the saga of a lot of people over many centuries as you sort of follow the way that power, this magical power from a magical plant uh, is distributed and then undistributed throughout the, uh, throughout the fantasy world. And it, it is based on the, the short film I did for 2013 now, so quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first started, uh, Bill had seen the short and reached out to me. It was like, can we make this world bigger? Like, how far can we take this? And I think, you know, you get to see exactly how far we could take it in the film. Well, and that's one of the great things with animation, because with animation, 
you really do have license to expand a world as much as you want. Uh, you're not restricted by location, by places. Um, you can expand your world to places that we can only dream of. And that's exactly what you do here. Um, so I'm curious, once you and once Phil got involved, Phil Gillott, your, your co-conspirator here, um, you know, how did you go about, you know, um, expanding this world from this tiny little, from a little short into this big world that spans centuries that we're see, we see unfold here? What was that process like for you? Was it story first? Was it animation and story together? Because every animator has his own process. So what was yours for this one? When I was animating the short, Exordium, it took about 10 months working all day, every day by myself. So it, I had a lot of time to think about where every little thing came from, you know, like every uh, piece of armor or every, you know, bit of, um, you know, hints that the characters mentioned. So, like, with, it, you know, I had 10 months just sort of doing on the world. And so when Phil reached out to me and wanted to expand it, I had all these thoughts that I'd just sort of been jotting down over the animation process during the short. It was a lot of time for your mind to wander. <laughs> Uh, and so we, you know, we had this sort of outline, and we were looking at, um, like, there's a, the Walter M. Miller Jr.'s uh, Canticle for Leibowitz is one of my favorite novels, um, and it, it does a similar sort of time-era-jumping structure. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of thought, what if we took that and melded it with the heavy metal anthology structure, you know, from the heavy metal movie? And it seemed like a natural fit for telling, like expanding this world into the largest uh, spectrum we could put it on. Mm -hmm. Now you have some really interesting characters in this world. Um, you have the Guardian. You have our heroine, Tazad. One of my favorite characters, I have to say, voiced by Patton Oswalt, Lord Pyrantin. And I have to say, the scene where his face gets quote-unquote burned, had me laughing. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. He, he nailed the performance just, like, as a petulant young ruler, and it's it's dark, and it's comedic, and I, I, he, you know, I mean, exceeded my wildest expectations for nailing the voice acting on that role. Well, and the thing is, his voice acting is such that you can just see him doing this. You know, throwing a tantrum on the floor, kicking his his feet, clutching his face, screaming, "My face, my face!" Um, <laughs> hilarious. And that you also get Joe Manganiello with an interesting role here as the mongrel, and of course, my dear friend and fave Larry Fessenden. Who else could he be but your prophet of doom? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Horror, I mean, Horror we King. The casting, there was not even a shadow of a doubt in my mind. <laughs> like from even when writing the character, I was like, "Oh, I hope we can get Larry Fessenden for this." Um, um, it's you have to go with Larry for a character like that. 
Um, yeah, 100%. You know, and of course, Lucy Lawless really blew me away with her voicing of Tazad, as did Richard E. Grant as the Guardian. Really interesting oh, I mean, choices. I mean, just the, the honor of a lifetime to be able to work with both of them. You know, uh, Phil and I have both been just fans since childhood of both of them, and it's, uh, you know, a real dream to have, like, you know, your heroes from your youth able to still come around and be in your project someday. It's very cool. Well, one of the interesting things about The Spine of Night is that not only is this an animated film, this is an independent animated film. We saw that, that we saw an independent animated film earlier in 2021 with CryptoZoo, Dash Shaw's film. Mm-hmm. You don't see that many independent animated films because of the time, the expense that goes with that time, and the animation processes. Um, how do you get voice talent? like Grant, like Lawless, like Oswald, like Joe and Larry, how do you get that talent for an animated film that always has a very extended timeline from beginning to end? Well, for our process, like the way it shook out was um, Betty Gabriel, who people might know from Westworld or Get Out, uh, was the only one of the voice cast that was also there when we were doing the motion reference filming for the road scoping process mm-hmm. of the top line cast. Lots of them did both. But so we, what that allowed us to do is be able to take a nearly finished film. I mean, you know, we'd been drawing it for six years by the time we were approaching these bigger names with the film to be like, would you be interested in working on this? So they could really see it in a very close to finish stage. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, introduces its own issues of getting the lip sync right and all that. But it, I think a big part of it was that so much of it we'd been able to accomplish that then when they came on board, we were able to then find the money to make that all come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also really helps that we recorded it during COVID, like peak lockdown COVID, <laughs> um, where so people were at home and they couldn't work. <laughs> so I think they're a lot more open to doing uh, a, a scrappy, independent, animated project. You know, and this is what people forget. There are some, there are some silver linings to the lockdown. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of thing, a lot of creativity happened uh, during that time period because people were bored. Um, yeah. yeah, and some of them like. Patton Oswalt has a recording studio in his basement, so very convenient. <laughs> oh, well, no rental involved. Really? And, oh, my God. Now, you mentioned something interesting, and a, a lot of people, I don't think, I, I'm sure they don't know what the rotoscoping process is. And basically what you do with rotoscoping is you film live action, and in your case, you then take a frame and you draw on top of it. So that you really, you get that fluidity of what would be live action. And you can do it with live action animation. And in many ways, it's similar to what's now being done with motion capture. With the mocap, and then it goes to somebody like the artisans at Weta. And they put together the whole computer. They digitize it all and build on it. Um, How 
challenging is this process, this rotoscoping process for you with the hand drawing of all this animation? Because this film, there is constant movement. You don't have, it's not like you have just somebody standing there. Like, see Dick, see Jane. Dick is standing here. Jane is standing here. And then here's Spot in the middle. And that's all they do from page to page. This is a lot of action. There is constant movement. You know, how challenging is that for you as an animator? It's um, a very challenging process. I think people often assume there's some sort of automation or that you're like just tracing the outlines of the the actors. But in reality, like, you know, lines don't exist and like the outfits aren't real. Like and it's all and if you want to integrate special effects, like we do a lot of blood and gore in this movie, so for the for the bodies to be as permeable <laughs> as you want with animation, like the rotoscoping itself, like the use of the live action footage is it is really good for timing and it's really good for letting um like the actors do what actors do best. Like the the way they'll twitch a finger or like an eye will dart in a way that I might not have thought of if I was animating it you know, purely traditionally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it incorporates a lot of that. But in the, the rotoscoping process itself, the old way is still you know it's keyframes and it's onion skins and it's the entire uh you know the traditional hand-drawn workflow at least as much as you can reproduce it on uh, a computer mm-hmm. you know i'm curious with this process of, of the rotoscoping the hand-drawn rotoscoping when do you introduce the color into that do you do everything and you get it all done in quote-unquote pen and ink styling first uh, with your with your dark with your black brush lines uh, outlines, when do you introduce your color palette? Because this is where things get very important with Spine of Night is with your inter- with your colors, um, and not just because of the blues and the mauves uh, and some periwinkles in there, but then you counter that depending on the time period and era with fiery golds, but they're really warm. Uh, and they throw a heat of their own that melds. So I'm curious when you then introduce color into this, uh, into the palette. Well, it it sort of happens in two phases. Like there's, um, we do start with just the line work, but pretty quickly, like it's, as soon as you put a background behind it, if it's not colored, you can't see the line work. Mm-hmm. So there was, um, the color comes in pretty early in like a, flat tone like we sort of go through the you know as we complete the shots and as soon as they have a background on behind them they have to be colored and then once the background's there taking the ambient colors from the background uh and sort of and overlaying them on top of the flat colors that we started with is um is is the process which is a thing that i uh i don't think you could have done in the pre-computer era like you can if you look at the making of features on like uh, the ralph Bakshi film uh, the fire and ice one's really good like you can see how they have like each time of day they have the same colors uh like sets of paints they're like oh this is this is 
if you want this flesh tone, but at sunset, it has to be this. Mm-hmm. And so we worked from a base flesh tone for all of, for the character the entire time, but then used the backgrounds um, to, to create highlights and shadows and change the tones digitally mm-hmm. by overlaying them and combining them with the flat colors, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense because as you watch the film, you can see, you know, even when rage, when emotion takes hold, um, uh, like in Joe's character of Mongrel, you can see when there is rage and you can see shadows coming in. So you see slight pigmentation changes. And yes. this and this is throughout the film. So that that really, we get more emotionality um, through that. Uh, with that nuance that you can now bring in as opposed to in 1915. <laughs> when you could not do that, it's here's your paints, here's your brush. Uh, and you can only mix so much. Um, so, no, it really, you have really brought in a lot of nuance here. And it's that nuance that really helps push the uh, the emotionality of characters and of situations. And just of some of the scene settings themselves. Um, it, there's so much going on as we span the millennia here uh, on this journey. Uh, I have to ask you, how did you come up with that specific color of blue for the, your plant? Let's call it, it's your hero plant, actually. How did you, how did you come up with that color of blue? Because that is really the brightest almost with a neon tinge to it the brightest color in the entire film it was you know i mean very much chosen to stand out from some from the film like to feel otherworldly like so it was a, a real balance of I, I think we must have recolored it three or four times like in, in the initial design state to really just find a way that it could pop way above the reality of the rest of the film. So mm-hmm. it felt like as supernatural as we could pull off in, you know, two dimensions. It re- um, you su- the you actual succeeded. color, I think it was, I don't know, I mean, a bit of a, a psychedelic journey of just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to absorb the film and adjusting the lighting and the colors. And, well, um, I, it and... all has like added blending layers done in um, like <laughs> more and more like the linear dodge mm-hmm. in the uh, blending modes to make it brighter and brighter as, as much as we possibly can. Well, and what's really interesting is that when we initially see the plant and around Tazad, she's got, you know, like a plant shield, more or less, um, mm-hmm. or a plant robe that, that graces the front of her. Um, and tucked in there is you know, the, the plant, the last plant as we go through this journey. But the outer shade is different than the inner shade when, the, when you open that, the blossom up. Uh, and it's very subtle, but it really, it's very effective, especially in that third act as we come near the end of the journey. And we see, you know, the blues co- dropping down from the sky on the winds. Um, 
and just so, so beautifully done, Morgan. So beautifully done. But I love that we see the differential in the pigmentation from the inside of the plant to the outside of the plant. Just that attention to detail adds so much. I love that that comes across because it's one of those things you work on for so long alone in your at your computer and assume and hope that it comes across. But, you know, you have no way of knowing if anyone will even register the, the subtle differences. I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A big element of this film, which might put it into the category uh, for many of being more adult animation, is... The it's very ultraviolet, um, you know, and the red. Whenever we have bloodshed, boy, that red stands out. Uh, and you do excellent blood splatter. I have I have to commend you on the blood splatter, on slicing it's purely the- because it's so much fun to do. It's <laughs> just like animating blood. I I suspect if you ask any hand animator, they will tell you it, that fluids are just incredibly. It's like freeing and entertaining. Like oh, it's almost like and a Jackson Pollock or something. It's it's very freeing after all the con- tight control of the line work. So. Well, and in but hand in hand is that ultra violence. I mean, we see some really great slice and dice happening here. Um, you know, we've got bodies getting you know sliced right up the middle. Here's the left half. Here's the right half. Um, it's it, you know it's no holds barred here. Did you have any trepidation about the type of violence and the amount of violence in this film? Well, <laughs> I mean, it sort of comes from two different places, I think, for me. One is, I mean, I grew up on Evil Dead and a lot of very splattery horror films. So it, that's always been uh, something I've really enjoyed in my entertainment. But I think also there's something about making sure that violence is paid out in animation. Because so often, like you'll see, uh, I don't know, I think I, all my references are ancient now. But like when you, they would shoot down the uh, Cobra jet in G.I. Joe and like everyone would always just parachute to safety or, you know, in a lot of animation that even in things like heavy metal they get they're sparing with the violence so it's like when uh i feel like if you're going to do violence like showing the the effects of violence was also part of like commenting on how unsanitary and horrific mass violence is so Mm -hmm. i'd like to think we we hit it from both sides like where it's both like, oh, that's exciting, you know, early Sam Raimi levels of splatter. Mm-hmm. But then also, uh, like, it's, I think of like a later Kurosawa film where you see just the wreckage after the battle. And you're like, oh, that was gruesome. And now there's just a lot of blood and parts everywhere. And this is really uh, kind of somber, despite it's uh, the, the ultraviolet. I hope it hits on both fronts. I think it does, and I think one of the important things is you've got subtext going on here with your story. You've got po- great political commentary going on underneath. You've got commentary about humanity, about worth, about value, 
Um, there's a lot going on here. This is not just a fantasy epic um, that has some dark magic, that has heroes, that has a hero plant. Um, no, you've actually you have a lot of subtext happening here within this story that comes across really, really well, and so much of it comes across through your animation. Well, I mean, very much. I, I, it's the hope that people will give it the chance to um, to tell the, the more subtle political and sociological themes. I think uh, sometimes people sort of miss them because you're not expecting to see them right. in a naked, gory fantasy setting necessarily, um, or to give it the benefit of the doubt that it's going to be, you know, have that sort of subtext. Uh, I think a lot of the the 70s fantasy animation and art that I love, you know, all grew, grew out of a lot of, um, you know, sociological and political eras where, you know, that was a big part of the themes. And it sort of disappeared from the genre, at least in the video form, in the 80s. And I think it's, I think people don't expect to see it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope they will give it the chance to, you know, express its its worldview. Well, and I think now, uh, you know, anybody sees the film now in light of world events, I think it'll be much easier for them to actually see the underlying subtext. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, when when the life you're living in, you know, if you're immersed in it and you're being bombarded with news and all kinds of things that are happening, I think that makes you more receptive to seeing it in something else, be it an animated film, be it a live action film. And I think that could impact how people, what people see and how they receive the film in a good way. Yeah. yeah I mean, I really hope so. It, it, it was, um, you know, we wrote it back in early 2014 and I think we were at the time, it felt more like these were, there's a lot of negative trends in the world that inherently informed what we were writing. But uh, I don't think we quite anticipated such a sharp <laughs> swing towards like uh, strongman totalitarianism and you yeah. know further uh, environmental decline and uh, yeah, you uh, went from so negative negative themes. We were anticipating it. You went from negative themes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from from when you started until now. Yeah, how? What was this collaboration like for you and Phil as co-writer, co-directors, you know, co-editors? Were you in the same? Uh, you know, you did a lot of this during COVID. Were you in the same room? Were you zooming back and forth? What was this collaboration like with co-directing, animation, and co-editing? If I mean, for me, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, I had been doing these small shorts. Um, with a little bit of help from some people in town, but mostly just animating by myself in my living room when I lived in Philadelphia. And, you know, Phil saw Exordium and gave me a call. And we hit it off pretty much right off the bat. There's a lot of overlapping interests and our, mm-hmm. you know, our, our favorite films are, are very similar. And so we were aligned quickly. And uh, it, it was just a really wonderful experience like to have someone reach out who had access to enough financing to actually do something bigger and with like 
uh, an incredible history of writing and directing prior to working with me. So it was wonderful. And we rented a warehouse in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, <laughs> in like an old paper factory. And uh, we just shot every day for five weeks. You know, after we'd had the script together, we shot all the live action reference. And it was one of the best times of my life. It was like being at summer camp, I guess. Everyone felt like, you know, the best friends you'd ever met. And everyone was working uh, and really giving their all to this very, I mean, the live action footage is very silly. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a lot of people <laughs> in their underwear. Or like, and every time you see someone riding a horse in the film, they were bouncing on a yoga ball in the in the room, so it, it was it, it was it was just a great time. We just had a really good time, okay. and uh, and just worked. Phil and I worked very well together, uh, and we it was and that was all back in 2014. So it was although we ended all during COVID, you know we had, we were you know I was staying at his place in Providence uh, mm-hmm. while we were doing all the editing and we went back and forth for months tightening the edit because you don't want to end up in a situation with animation where you have to cut anything that was drawn because it's such a slow process. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we wanted to get the edit exactly how we wanted it before, you know, any animation began, which is another advantage of rotoscoping is that you have so much footage that while it might be incoherent because there's no background or costumes uh, to someone who didn't write the screenplay, but to be able to do a, a holistic edit together, I mean, it sort of set the template so we knew what we'd be doing for the next uh, seven years of animation. Now, when did your music come into play here? Um, Peter Scartabello's scoring for this film. Um, mm. Did you bring that in for the edit? Were you doing... Uh, was music, did you have a temp scoring? When did the music actually come in, and what were you looking for from Peter in terms of the composition? The music came on oh, probably about five years in. We'd had temp music, although <laughs> in retrospect, I don't think it ever would have really suited, but we had lots of like, like atonal drones and ambient sounds. And that kind of stuff in the uh, in the very original edit, uh, which we'd always sort of intended to replace. But finding the right tone for the film was tricky because we wanted each era as the time passes to have its own musical character. Um, we had to experiment with a lot of other stuff early on. Like we tried doing more of like sort of a rock and roll or metal soundtrack, uh, and it. Just never felt quite right for the tone. I, I think a lot of people would look at the visuals and assume it's going to sound like stoner metal or doom metal. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we ultimately felt like to, the emotional peaks were better hit by something more uh, fantasy and orchestral. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Phil knew Peter Scardabello because he's also in New England. Okay, and they'd run in each other at some point and he had been doing a lot of like commercial work but really wanted to stretch his legs creatively and do a big fantasy score so you know we were we went back and forth on that quite a bit uh you know i mean i think you can hear strains of you know the uh basil polidorus 
Conan score and, you know, there's little bits of, you know, John Carpenter here and there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, he was incorporating a lot of genre elements into creating an original score. And I, I, I love what he did with it. Oh, I um, think it suits the film perfectly. It really does, Morgan. Yeah, I, he was wonderful, a wonderful collaborator. And then we have a lot of other bands who, or artists who worked on the individual sections, too, contributing a piece. We have um, Marissa Nabler did the folk music section uh, in the, when they're walking through the ruins in the middle of the film. And we talked, we worked with some um, dungeon synth bands, which is a, uh, a genre I got really into while we were working on this. They, they sort of do like, I don't know, neo fantasy, but like it was in the 80s synth music. So, so we incorporate a lot of those elements to sort of uh, give Scardabella the bookends and then have the, each section a little bit of its more um, distinct character. Well, unfortunately now, Morgan, we are all out of time. But before I let you go, I got two questions for you. Number one, where can people see The Spine of Night? And number two, where were you in Philly? I'm born and bred. You know? Oh, oh. Well, uh, we were living in Mount Airy, West Mount Airy. Okay. So we were there. Um, yeah, my, my brother moved there, and then when we moved uh, to be close to him, that's just an area we ended up in, which is which is a, just a wonderful place. We had a great time there. Lovely. Um, as, far, <laughs> as far as where you can see it, uh, it's currently uh, video on demand on all the usual stores in almost every country in the world now and it will be on streaming on shutter this thursday terrific well i can't wait to see what you do next morgan i hope it doesn't take another seven years but if it's animation i know i will have to be patient it could well we will see we'll see i i i can't wait to to move forward with another big project but hopefully yes much faster than than this one. Oh, Morgan, thank you so, so much. This has been really enlightening talking to you about The Spine of Night. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, such a joy. Thank you so much, Morgan, and we will chat again soon. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is, of course, we went over. Um, that is all the time we have today for our day of animation. All about animation today. Two very interesting conversations. Um, and two truly excellent films. See them both. Mitchell's vs. Machine, Machines on Netflix. The Spine of Night on all the usual suspect digital platforms. So... Until next week, when we're going to talk about Academy Award winners, Academy Awards Sunday night, we'll talk about the winners and maybe my disgust at who may lose. Um, And we've got a wonderful Alessandra Gentili will be with us live talking about Lodo next week. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 